Scripture reading this morning comes from Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it, or you will die. No, you will not certainly, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. As you guys know, we've been going through our sermon series called Storied, which is why I've been talking a lot about it. And one of the things that we love to be able to do is to have um, Nick come up and preach. We love to be able to um, give opportunity to those who are growing in their ministry and ministerial life. And being able to get, get reps in, if you will, is one of the biggest ways that we can do that here at the table. So Nick is preaching for us this morning, and we are grateful to be able to have him. All right, well, good morning, everybody, if I haven't said good morning to you yet. Um, yeah, um, so the reason we sit when we um, preach here at the table, um, I think is as important, is because we're all seated. Um, we all are conversation partners in this together. Um, and so that's the air of what I want this to be, what we want our spaces to be. Um, so feel free to jump in. Uh, we were talking about some complex things. Um, yeah, so feel free to jump in, chime in, take notes, whatever, whatever um, is comfortable with you. But um, today we are discussing a not-so-fun topic. Maybe we don't um, visit the story of the fall um, too often. Maybe we like to read Genesis 1 and 2, um, skip over 3, and then just kind of figure out what <laughs> happened in, in the rest and, and how we got there. But um, yeah, when I say like sin or the fall of humanity, those words have baggage, right? When I say the word sin, like what, what comes to mind for you is negative memories. Feel free to answer back. When I say, when I hear sin, what is your, maybe even your emotions? Agreed, yeah. Yeah, totally. Thanks, Jeff. Anybody else? Sin. Or anybody, I'll just ask this. When you hear the word sin, do you feel some kind of like weight in your body? Maybe some negative emotions. I know I do. Um, it's kind of icky. Weighs heavy on us. Maybe there's a lot of guilt or shame that we carry. All that to say, sin is not fun to talk about, um, and we don't like to talk about it. Um, 
But the good news is um, I'm not going to sit here and browbeat everybody because I would first have to remove the two cedars um, coming out of my eyeballs, uh, as Jesus reminds us, um, um, to talk about anyone else's sin. But today we're talking about our story, where we are, what, our, what has brought us to um, where, where we are, the world that we live in. Um, and I think often in this story we have some misconceptions. Um, and so what I want to do, rather than talking about sin, is let's just look at this narrative. What does the narrative have to teach us about who we are? What's the heart of our, our sinfulness? What's, what's, what's at the, the core? Um, yeah, so it's interesting. No matter the worldview, you always hear this. It's so fascinating to me. No matter your, your worldview, no matter um, where you come from, um, no matter what your political views are, People always agree, they'll say it in many different ways, that the world is broken. People are messed up. The system is broken. The world is not okay. People all agree on that universally. I've never met anybody that says the world is perfect as it is right now. And so there's many stories and many, many ways people get there, but we do all agree on that. But this is our story. This is the story that God um, teaches us about who we are. And so that's the story um, we're going to focus on. It's also funny, I, I wrote this down. Um, they might not say that they are messed up, the individual, but that the world is. Certainly everything else is, is messed up, but, but not then. Um, so yeah, we're just going to look at this story. I would describe what we're going to do today a little bit more like teaching rather than preaching. So if you're expecting some big zinger, it's probably not going to happen. Um, but yeah, let's just learn together, take notes, um, and just read and dive into what we've got here. Um, but before we get started, I want to talk about some narrative frameworks that are going to frame how we look at this passage. Um, so we're two chapters in to Genesis. This is the third chapter. And basically what what has happened thus far is God has made life. He made it abundantly flourishing. The whole earth is teeming with it. He structured everything. It's good for life, and it's good. So when God sees that it's good, the narrative shows us that it's life-giving, full of life. So, yeah, goodness, in some sense, to this point, means making life, its ability to create life from chaos to order um, from barren to fruitfulness. That's what goodness means. And humans, as a part of that creation, are made in the image of God. They're to be like God. They have dominion over all the creation. And in Genesis 1.28, humanity is told to make life. They're to be like God. So shorthand, what, how do humans, this far in the narrative, image God? How do they bear his image? Well, they make life not death. They, they multiply. They fill the earth. So goodness is making life, not death. That's how humanity images God. So that's going to be our, our framework, um, what goodness means, what our job is as human beings. And so let's just look, keeping those in mind. Let's read this text together. Um, such, such a, um, or we're just going to walk through it. So in verse 1, I know it says 3, but that's a, a formatting issue on my, my part. Also earlier we read Psalm 50, not Psalm 49. That was another typo. Um, so if you go look up Psalm 49, you're not going to get that. Definitely Psalm 50. But let's look at, at verse 1. So now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, 
Did God really say you can eat from any tree of the garden? So it's interesting, a serpent talking to a human. Humans have dominion over the snake. They rule the snake. They rule all the creatures, all the earth. But what is happening right now is that they are allowing a snake to have dominion over them, to try to influence them. You'll notice also that it says, he said to the woman. Thus far in the narrative, we have only seen humanity, man and woman, Adam, Eve, whatever you like, together. So when the serpent specifically says to the, sep- or to the woman, he's achieved separation. He separated that which is meant to be joined. God said, even, it is not good for man to be alone. And what we have here is humanity alone. He didn't make us. You see, God didn't make us to be independent. He made us to be joined together. Another interesting facet of the narrative is that God has a name, like my wife. I don't say my wife. I say Natalie. Natalie has a name. Lauren has a name. God, in the same way, has a name. We just call him God, but we can say God's. But throughout the narrative, especially in chapter 2, you see God's personal name indicating an intimate relationship. That's missing from this text when the serpent speaks. Even um, he said, uh, the Lord God, you'll see it right here in the first thing. So it's the Lord God, his personal name. And then when he speaks, he just says God. You see, the serpent is trying to separate the woman from her partner and also her from God. And when the snake speaks, he says, you can't eat from any tree of the garden. God made the garden for every, he said you can eat from any tree of the garden. But this one, do not eat from. On that day you will eat from it, you will surely die. But God is a God of abundance. And we see what the serpent here is doing. is saying, you can't eat. But God said, you can eat. He's calling God a liar. He's also saying, God is a God of death. He's not allowing you to eat. He wants you to starve. God is not good. The life-giving good God that we had is no longer good. So says the serpent. He wants you to starve. God is not the God of life. He's the God of death. That is how the woman, again, having dominion over the snake, is allowing him to influence her. We'll read in verse 2. I'll try to move quickly through this so we can get to the the real meat. But in verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, immediately, the woman does not turn to her partner, the other half of her. The woman is still stranded alone. The snake achieves separation. And we see in verse 3, The woman doesn't use the word Yahweh, God's personal name. She's allowed the snake to influence her such that she does not, she's not reminded of the intimacy um, that they share. And she distorts God's command by being influenced by the the snake. She says, "Um, you're right. Um, But the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. God didn't say that. He said, you can eat from any tree, except for this one. What she is saying, she's being influenced, is that God is restrictive. He's secretive. He wants to keep things from you. God doesn't want your best. In some sense, she's agreeing with the snake in that God is the God of death. You're right. 
He doesn't want the best for me. He doesn't want life. The snake replies in verse 4, No, you will certainly not die. God is a liar, says the snake. He does not want the best for you. In verse 5, he says, God, in fact, knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You will be like God. God doesn't want your best. He doesn't want you to be like him. The great irony is that humanity is already like God. They're already made in the image of God. They multiply like God. They make life like God. And he is, in, she, he is telling, the serp, or telling the woman, you, you, you can't be like God. But in fact, she already is. She is like God. Verse 6, and this is a, a fun thing. Um, you'll see I, I bolded and italicized the word saw. Often we think um, the sin is in that second sentence, she took. We often see the taking of the fruit as the sin. But you have to understand in the mind of the, uh, the, mind of the ancient Hebrew, language is poetic, and this is a poetic type of, of thing. And so even the subtlest details just scream off the page. And so verse 6, we see, The woman saw, who do you think the only creature is thus far that has seen anything in the narrative? God. God sees that his creation is good. So when we see the woman saw that the tree was good, the only thing that the only thing so far that has seen anything good is God. And it's not that the woman is blind. What the narrative is saying is that she has asserted herself as God. She has taken God off his throne and put in herself there. You see, that is the point of the sin in the narrative. She tries to be like God, which she already is, apart from God. She's making death for God. I'm going to be a little bit dramatic here for emphasis. When she says, this is the essence of sin, again, we're supposed to be good like God, to make life like God, not, not death. God is good, make life. When she takes God off his throne, and tries to be like God, she's saying, God, I don't need you. I can be like you. You might as well go die. I'm God now. That's the effect. That is what is happening here. Again, that seems so dramatic, but that's what happens. When we take God off of his throne, we say, I wish you never existed because I can do it so much better. Go die, God. And so what seems like us just looking at a fruit and grabbing it is not so innocent. What the narrative is screaming at us is that she is in open rebellion against God. You see, in trying to make life, and trying to provide for herself, what she has actually done is made death. She's not lived into her image-bearing capacity to make life. She's making death for God. God, go die. I can do it and consequently making death for herself. What she perceives as life is actually death. So we see in verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened after they had both eaten the fruit. And they knew that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The serpent won. 
You see, lots of times we make the serpent out to be the bad guy, and he is the bad guy. But we see that the serpent is only the tempter. Humanity is responsible for the choice of good or evil. Their eyes were opened, and they saw that they were naked. Once in perfect communion with God, that relationship now fractured. Humanity is responsible for their choice of good or evil. So what does this tell us about the essence of sin? What do y'all think? Based on Eve's actions. Yeah, I think you hit it, Jeff. And hopefully that's where I was leading us. <laughs> uh, if not, we're going to have an issue. But uh, this is the evidence, that the essence of sin. Choosing our own good, what we perceive as good, Apart from God's goodness, we make death, not life. We say, God, go die when we are in rebellion. I can be God better than you can be God. That is the essence of sin. It's selfishness. It's like, I heard this last week, sin is like not trusting in God's extravagant generosity such that you think you have to get him off of his throne and place yourself there so you can provide for yourself. But what's so ironic is that God has made the most lush, beautiful, abundant world for us to live in, for us to, to live in, in, the, in, in some sense, opulence of all that he has, has made, the riches, for us to have life fully. But when we take God off of that, we are not trusting in that generosity, and we make death for ourselves. We tell God to go die. We also forsake our image-bearing status. If our image-bearing status is to make life, we're making death. We're saying, God, I'm going to be like you, and in essence, you're being the opposite of God. You're making death, not life. And so I think this is a helpful framework for me in thinking about sin, just simply Make life, not death. So let's think about um, the, the essence of or, uh, some sins. I have a couple here, and then we can, you can throw out some other examples. Stealing. I need this to live, and you don't. I need this more than you need to live. I don't care about your life. You can die such that I live. That's the essence of stealing. Lying. You are not worth the truth. You do not bear the image of God. You are subhuman, not worthy of the truth, therefore not worthy of life. What are some other sins? Let's run it through this, this paradigm. It can be just petty sins uh, or, or just little ones or big ones. I mean, murder is obvious. That is literal taking a life. But, um, yeah, what are, some, what are some sins? Gluttony. That's a good one. I have not trusted such that God would provide for me, that I have to over-provide for myself, not trusting in God's goodness, saying, in essence, God go die. I have to consume all this right now. I do not trust that you will provide for me in the future. I have to indulge right now. God go die so I can provide for myself. That's good. Envy, of course. Yeah, I want all of your stuff. I want your wife. I want you to die so that I can have your stuff. You don't need it. Your life is worthless. Let me have your stuff. 
lust. This is great. Lust, I think, is twofold in some ways. Lusting after, specifically sexual, you have reduced an individual to like lower than their image-bearing status. So you're not giving them dignity in the same way that lying is. You're subhuman. I need you for my end. I don't need you to be who you are. You can might as well go die, your essence, your humanity. Lusting after another person's wife, maybe, or, or husband, or, or whatever, goes along with envy. You go die so I can have your, your wife, your husband. I'm, I'm using wife because, um, yeah, anyways, but, but whatever, whatever it is. I'm just using that as a, an example, but it goes both ways, obviously. Maybe one more, and then, and then we'll, I'll, let this, uh, I'll let this lie. Sloth. God, okay, this is good. I love this. Um, because, no, the, yeah. Um, all right, yeah. Work predates the fall. When God made humanity, he said, work and keep this garden. So that's a beautiful thing we look to in heaven, is that we will be working and active. Work predates the fall doing good things, making life. So what you're saying is, God, I do not trust that you have made me in such a way that I can care and steward your creation because that is the essence of my being. I reject that. God, you are wrong. God, you go die so that I can live the life I want and place myself as God, my own purposes for my life. I think that's sloth. So I, I just love thinking about that. And so um, making life, not death. Sin is making death, not life. So this is a pretty bleak story. Has anybody heard me say anything positive at all to this point? Probably not, no. And this can seem like a bleak story. It's uncomfy, like I pre- prefaced it with. We don't like to talk about this. It's a tragedy, Someone who's made like God, rejecting their godhood in a way, their capacity to bear God's image. It's tragic. But I'm positive that we can each see ourselves in that story. Think about the tempter's words. When in your life have you heard a tempter distort the truth just enough to where you think you have to take control, what you abandon, what you know to be true, what you know to be right, you abandon that. I know I can think of many, many cases. But each of us have a story of where, in where we're trying to do what we thought was good. And, and that's what she thought it was good for herself. We twist the truths in our own heads and forsake what we know to be right. And in our actions, we cause deep suffering for ourselves and also for those around us. So who are we? What is our story? Well, as a consequence of sin, this world is broken. We are broken. Again, we all agree on that. See, this world, and almost certainly ourselves, we are governed by rebellion and selfishness. We try to put ourselves in the place of God where we were never meant to be. We abandon our image-bearing nature And we can see the effects all around us. You don't have to look far to see the effects of brokenness, selfishness, rebellion. That's our world. That's who we are. And while that is our story, let's praise God that's not the end of the story. (laughs) Right? Amen. 
we would think that in response to such an egregious act, God, go die, I can be God. God would surely kill them immediately. The narrative even makes you think so. On that day you eat of it, you will certainly die, God says. The woman certainly knows that as well. Eat of this tree, death is connected. (laughs) You would think that that's what God would do. That he would kill them immediately or just kick them out and forsake them and let them fend for themselves. Well, maybe some of us today think God has done that. He has kicked us out, abandoned us to fend for ourselves. When there's so much brokenness in the world, where's God at? But what I love about the story is that God does not abandon them. Verses 9, or 8 and 9, just shortly after this, God's walking about through the garden, and he asks them, where are you? See, God initiates the restoration God is there. He does not abandon them in this narrative. But that does not negate the consequences of sin. You see, humanity is held responsible by its actions, by a just God. They receive punishment, separation from God. They're moved outside of the garden to toil and pain and eventually death. And this is pretty cool. I like this. But in Genesis 3.15, Probably one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. I think this is something we can keep going back to over and over and over. God is cursing the serpent for what he has done to the woman. And he's saying that he will strike the the heel of the offspring of the woman. And we can attest we've all been stricken in in the heel. But also that the offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And that's what the whole rest of the narrative, I'm kind of setting us up for the weeks following. Where we've been, God created our image. Here we are in the fall, and where are we headed? The whole rest of the narrative is looking for the one who will crush the serpent's head. Who's going to be that, that serpent crusher, the snake crusher? This is the hope. And there's many people, that's what all the narratives are about. Is this person going to be the snake crusher? Is Abraham going to be the snake crusher? Well, he certainly seems like it. He's very generous with Lot. Um, Let's him choose uh, the land that he wants, knowing that God's going to be generous to him. Again, acknowledging God's generosity. But we see Abraham mess up time and time again. And everybody in the rest of Scripture, that's just one example, don't trust in God's generosity, and they place themselves in God. So who is going to crush the snake? And there is one. I bet we can guess who that is. His name is Jesus. You see, that is our hope. Jesus is the one who did what we could not do. You see, we, there's two different versions of sin that I like to think about. And maybe they blend a little bit more than I like to think. Um, or I do, never mind. Uh, but there's lowercase s sin. That is, sins that I commit when I lie, when I envy, when I'm slothful. But there's also a capital S sin. And so the earliest interpreters of this text understood that there is this cosmic entity playing. That when we send a force known as sin, as death, has taken influence over our world. Kind of like gravity, how we feel the effects of gravity without knowing it. And so not only do we sin, but this world 
is full of the influence of capital S sin, who is akin to Satan, to death, all of these things. That is also how sin affects us, not just so that we can live moral lives, but it has encaptured a whole creation. But Jesus did what we could not do through his life, death, and resurrection, ascension, and his ultimate coming. He defeated the power of sin and death over us who believe in him. You see, we are like the woman in the garden, but we are unlike the woman in the garden in the fact that we have Jesus, the one who crushed death, crushed the head of the serpent. He holds the keys to death in Hades, Revelation 1.18 tells us. In Colossians 2.15, one of Joey's texts uh, that he loves, he has disarmed the rulers and the authorities, that which seeks to bond us to sin by triumphing over them. You see, he has won. And by our union and participation with Christ, we too can crush the head of the snake. We begin to fully embody our image-bearing nature. We are liberated from the power of sin. Romans 6.14, sin will have no dominion over you. You are under the law of grace. 1 Corinthians 15.54 and 57, death has been swallowed up in victory, and God gave us that victory through Jesus Christ. It is ours who we belong by our union and participation. But hear me say this as well. Christ did not die so that we did not have to take responsibility for our actions. Christ died so that we could take responsibility for our actions, for our sinfulness. He takes them away. So what does that mean for us today? How am I being affected by capital S, sin? Though Christ has set me free from that, how am I bound to the negativity, to the brokenness, to the harm of this world? Maybe some of us need to repent. Maybe some of us need to forgive because Christ has forgiven us greatly. Also, something I ask myself when I'm thinking about my actions, am I making life or am I making death? God made me in his image so I could make life. How am I making death for others? How am I being selfish? How am I causing suffering for other people? Am I making life? How am I choosing what I perceive as good? And it's caused great suffering for me and those around me. How can I make my life for myself? I, I wrote this wrong. Um, grammar's terrible. Um, how am I making life for myself and trusting God and his vast generosity knowing that making a hard decision, God will provide because he has given us extravagance, grace, this whole world. How am I making life for others? You see, it's our point to make life and not death. We are all encaptured in the powers of sin, and sin is all around us. But we have the one who didn't sin, empowering us. How do we make life in this world? and not death. Would you pray with me as we uh, transition? Lord God, make us to be givers of life, not death. God, you've given us so much more, and I pray that you just squash 
any thinking that you will not be able to be generous to us. Lord, that it seems the right thing is sacrificing so much. How could we possibly go on? How could we possibly live if we're giving up this much to do the right thing? God, you will always provide for us. You are good, and you have given us goodness. So God, I pray that we come to greater faith in Jesus, your son, so that we could live his life God, life close to you. So help us live life, make life for one another, and not death, Lord, just as you've called us to do. And we say this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.